Hello and welcome back to another episode of Art of Science. I'm Graham Ambrose, the host here on Art of Science. Uh, and just as a reminder, this is a quarterly interview podcast that coincides with each issue of the Policy Studies Journal. Uh, so if you're listening live or if you're kind of listening through uh, anywhere that you're getting your podcasts, uh, just a quick reminder up front to both rate, review, and uh, subscribe to the podcast. Uh, today, I'm, I'm very excited. Uh, we have kind of two new guests here. So first, we have Dr. Maureen Staub, who is an assist associate professor of political science at Georgia Southern University. Hello, Maureen. Hello. Uh, second, we have uh, Banks Miller, who's a professor of political science at the University of Texas at Dallas. How are you doing, Banks? Hello. Hi. Um, and there's actually a third author that couldn't join us today, uh, but is on the paper, Joshua Kennedy, uh, who is an associate professor of political science, also at Georgia Southern University. So in the August issue of PSJ, uh, the three authors published the mixed messages abounded and bounded rationality, uh, the perceived consequences of real ID, for immigration policy. So just quickly at a high level, um, they're tracking the kind of tricky task of measuring the effects of bounded rationality and the outcomes of policy. Uh, they're doing this through uh, real ID uh, legislation and the political messaging that comes out of that real ID. Um, and what they're actually measuring here is we see uh, how it actually leverages the street level bureaucrats, in this case, the circuit uh, court judges and how those judges' actions are actually responsive to different and changing principles. Um, so just to start off uh, kind of that high level uh, discussion of the paper, uh, would you mind kind of digging a little bit deeper into the publication itself, either Marine or Banks? Sure. <clears throat> Um, so basically what we're focusing on, as you said, is this question of the immigration policy gap. Why is it that the outcome doesn't tend to match the intent? Um, and we're looking at the immigration judges, which are bureaucrats who um, essentially are the street level bureaucrats in this in this uh, scenario who implement it uh, in asylum cases. So that would be when individuals are seeking refuge in the U.S., uh, claiming that they're persecuted in their home country. And we're looking at the Real ID Act because essentially what was found in Banks's book and then later research, which we found that um, although it was intended to give these immigration judges more discretion, so it was easier for them to deny these asylum applications based on finding that the uh, applicant didn't have the credibility, wasn't credible, um, that it actually resulted in more grants, in more asylum grants. And so this was a puzzle we were trying to understand uh, and when addressing it, we were looking at three main factors, which is the language of the statute itself, and then um, the professional norms of the bureaucrats, and then their, um, and then how much they're monitored by each of the, because it's one of those multiple principle situations where they have to respond to Congress who writes the statutes, and they respond to um, the Court of Appeals who oversees and can um, overturn basically their cases. And they also have to respond to the executive, who is the one who hires and fires them, um, and then also um, reviews their cases. So 
the Real ID was a good example of this and what we saw with um, a lot of immigration policy, what you find is this kind of ambiguous, conflicting language in the statutes and um, the regulations and policy coming out. So um, just trying to understand that, we looked at how that the language of the statute here was conflicting because they rejected the old standard, which made it hard to deny, but they ended in language that essentially uh, made it seem like you should still be using the old standard. So it was confusing to the immigration judges. And um, so what we expect and what we argue is that because of their professional norms, you have to be a lawyer to be an immigration judge. And because of the fact that the Court of Appeals monitors more closely um, the particular um, and how they're reviewed by even the executive they look at, um, they consider um, those reputation costs of, of how the Court of Appeals treats them that we expect that the Court of Appeals actually will end up having more influence, even though it was the not what was intended when they wrote it. So um, then we find evidence supporting that. So um, I don't know if you want to add anything, Banks, but that's basically. Uh, no, I, I mean, I think you did a great job. Um, yeah, I mean, we, you know, I think the main takeaway from the paper is we find, um, I don't want to say contrary to, to the literature, but maybe um, sort of outside what it has normally considered is that the circuit courts are really the ones that are um, put in control of policy or to whom the, the IJs are more, the immigration judges are more responsive. And we sort of expected that, I think from some of Maureen's prior work and, and just thinking and looking about it and, and some of our joint work together. Um, but I think that the clarity of the breakpoint around real ID was, was kind of surprising. Um, uh, and you know, if you look at it, you can see that uh, in terms of like responding, for instance, to the ideology of the circuit, uh, that the immigration judges before Real ID, they, they essentially don't, right? Um, but afterwards, there's this, you know, this figure in the paper with this incredible slope, right, where you see that they are highly reactive to what they anticipate the, the circuit court would do, so. Wonderful. And I... Um... I want to ask about some kind of practical implications, but I think I think there was a great discussion. I really enjoyed it at the end of the paper and the conclusion. I was thinking about kind of the the mixed messages and how there's a practical implication there. Um, but kind of what both of you are highlighting as well is um, you know the professionalization, right? So is this kind of uh, reflection or kind of um, big jump in the influence of bounded rationality expected in kind of other domains or kind of other um, more or less professionalized uh, um, kind of bureaucracies. So uh, would you would you two be interested in uh, kind of discussing both of that, of kind of the ambiguity and the practical implications of that, but also the practical implications of your work on um, what this means for professionalization? Mm -hmm. Well, I think that there's a lot in the literature talking about how there's more and more use of administrative adjudicators. And um, what we want to continue to explore in our research is what is the what are the implications of that in particular for what Banks is saying with the Court of Appeals and depending, I mean, this could be, it's also something you could look at cross-nationally, but this question of when you look, when you add the administrative adjudicator and you court of, basically put the dressings of a court on a situation, um, and a lot of that, 
I can speak specifically to immigration. There's there's talk about that's that's supposed to add this procedural norm as perception and add legitimacy to the situation. Um, and there's research showing that for the immigrants in particular, they do see this as a procedurally fair process when they're when they're um, because of that. But um, the question then becomes when you professionalize, when you have the bureaucrats have to be lawyers and they're given these trappings of a court, then and you have review by the courts um, on a on those details, street level implementation, will you see greater and greater uh, influence of the courts in these areas? Um, and, and specifically in the immigration policy literature, there's less talk about the court influence. There's more talk about um, the courts basically in judicial review, right? Deciding that this violates my, uh, the rights of immigrants. But what um, is really interesting in the growing question is what is going to happen at that implementation, the street level, you know, that, that is the key and the impact in individual lives. We're seeing more and more influence of the courts because you're professionalizing, because you're bringing in, right, the a lawyerly court-like appearance to it all. Yeah, I, to tack on to what uh, Marina is saying, you, you know, I think you, there's sort of two ways to think about this in my in my mind, and one of them is just to track or try to track the spread of the kind of adjudication administrative approach that we see in immigration across the federal, you know, across federal policy areas, really. And so, you know, one area where it's where it's similar in terms of who's doing the deciding is the patent system. Um, so a lot of um, you know, appeals and patent cases are going to be decided by, you know, adjudicated, judge-like adjudicators with law degrees, right? Um, and then you also see it um, very prominently in like the social security administration system, right? And so there's a lot of mix of like high and low in terms of the difficulty of the law being interpreted, but the people who are doing it um, in a lot of the like day-to-day -day decisions of policy implementation that people actually see are these adjudicators, are these sort of Article One type, um, you know, congress theoretically congressionally controlled um, mm -hmm. uh, people. And then the second way that you could think about this is, uh, and this is sort of kind of at the heart of my own like broad research program, is the idea of discretion, right? And so... Mm -hmm. Anytime that you are introducing discretion in the application of a law, which of course is inevitable, right? You're inviting in um, questions about who the person doing the implementing is, right? And the larger the amount of discretion, the more likely that is to be the case. And so to marry those two points together, right? I think that in a lot of these instances where we have sort of lawyer-like, court-like adjudication, there's a lot of room for discretion, right? And it's a sort of, it's almost a, a selection effect is not quite the right way to think about it, but it's it's like where we see this process is also where there's likely to be a lot of discretion because of the kinds of questions that are being asked. Um, and it's harder to track how that might play out in a situation where it's less law-like and or where there's lower levels of professionalization. So you might think about this in terms of like, uh, an economist at the Federal Trade Commission or something, right? That's a professional. It's not necessarily legal in its decision-making. And I don't know uh, off the top of my head enough to say what we know about how those types of um, 
uh, you know, federal bureaucrats pursue impl implementation. Um, and, and so I think that's a point we try to make at the end of the paper is that there's just a lot that's unanswered um, and thinking about these kind of technologies and stuff like that. Wonderful. And, and thanks, uh, both of you for kind of pulling this apart. I guess uh, to, to kind of move into this even farther, right, um, you highlight that at the end of the paper that you, you kind of call out all the things we don't know uh, around discretion and how bounded rationality actually influences this. Um, I guess like a question that I then have is bounded rationality, especially in the policy process is assumed, right? It's kind of underlying uh, the models that I use or the models that um, maybe a lot of the people that are, are watching this or hearing this are using, um, but you don't have people that are actually engaging it or trying to measure it or think kind of critically and empirically about it. It's again, this underlying assumption um, so I guess I'm curious where that, where this desire to directly measure it or to direct kind of uh, directly think about bounded rationality comes from, um, and kind of how you how you kind of thought about this and and conceived it and and brought it into this paper. Well, that would be um, when we when you were thinking about how the the idea evolved. That would be the author who's not here, Josh, who who is um, who's really uh, our bureaucracy expert. He was the one who said this is this is bounded rationality as we're looking at it and we're thinking about it and picking it apart. Um, so that's really where that came in and the desire to understand that um, and connecting that to um, personally, I think both Banks and I thinking about this in terms from a legal perspective. Uh, what does that mean when you're talking about lawyers and how do you how do you um, how do you get at that for this new and, and continually growing practice? So, Yeah, I, I think um, Maureen and I both come to this from kind of a judicial behavior perspective um, where we don't talk about it necessarily in terms of bounded rationality. We, we think about it in terms of discretion, but it's really the same underlying issue. Mm -hmm. And um, so coming at it from this sort of adjacent field um, you know, we have kind of the three main theories of how judges make decisions and, and, and that really forms, I think, the basis for us in kind of putting the scaffolding in, scaffolding in place in the paper to try to understand what's going on. Um, but it's, re it's really the same question, um, I think, uh, in a lot of ways. Um, and I think it's the right question to be asking in a lot of these instances. Wonderful. And if you're thinking about kind of these different kind of legal bureaucracies or um, immigration law, I'm just curious where uh, for you that interest came from um, and um, maybe not tracking through the whole history, but you know, uh, where those original questions came from, but also how that has emerged into uh, kind of this specific paper. I'll go first here because I think mine is shorter than Maureen's. <laughs> um, my, my interest came from a colleague who brought me in on a paper um, when I was younger um, and had less gray hair in my beard and things like that. <laughs> um, and, you know, she she was mainly studying it, uh, Linda Keith was mainly studying it from the perspective of a human rights question, right? Um, and more in an international context, it's sort of like, you know, IR scholars had approached this as thinking about, well, what does how the U.S. looks at asylum seekers from different places say about our foreign relations, right? 
Um, and we kind of wanted to invert that in a way and say, well, what, what, you know, how much control is there actually is actually present in this system, right? How much intention is there given that all of this has to be translated by these street level bureaucrats who are under, you know, incredible um, time pressure, uh, you know, and who have, I think, I think one immigration judge once described this as making kind of life or death decisions in a traffic court like setting, right? Um, where they're just moving people through and, 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 um, and so that was really interesting to me. I had a special interest from my PhD advisor in like specialized courts. So these are like kind of weird one-off like things nobody thinks about, but from a theoretical perspective, they could be really interesting because you've got variation in things that you don't normally get in, in sort of more normal institutions. So that's how I came to it. I will let Maureen tell you her story. Yeah, I'll try to keep it short, right? Um, so I think my, it, well, I was, when I went to law school, I, I found myself, um, as we were chatting about, just kind of really fascinated by immigration law and policy. So then I practiced immigration law. And in practicing it, one of the, uh, for about several years, se seven years before I went and got my PhD. And for me, when I was practicing it, one of the things that was a driving force to go back and get my PhD was this feeling like, does... Do, what is the outcome of these laws? Because <laughs> you're seeing this mess. It's incredibly complex. It's um, there's these contradicting, ambiguous, so many things um, going on in this system. And I'm doing as you're doing it on a case by case basis. You're thinking, is this really having the effect that it's intended to have? Like what what is? Um, and so I wanted to ask those bigger questions. And so I guess I basically saw that immigration policy gap in in the process of actually practicing in the cases. And so I wanted to understand that. So then in, in my PhD, um, in the process of PhD, I read Banks's book. Um, he was one of my mentors. So reading that, it started to see, okay, I'm understanding immigration judges. I'm understanding them within this broader framework. And then, um, and then moving and reading more of that immigration policy gap literature and really getting that to say, basically, this is the theoretical framework for what I experienced. I think that's the short version of the story. of <laughs> I guess uh, one question that kind of comes to mind then is, uh, Maureen, it seems like you, your interest is coming from a very practical aspect, right? You're, you were living it, you're experiencing it, you're litigating it, and you're asking, well, what's the bigger question? And I guess, um, Banks, I kind of see it from the flip side of you're thinking about the bigger question, uh, maybe, maybe in a, a different lens to what kind of RI scholars were doing at the time, as you were talking about. Um, but I guess if, if you could both speak to kind of um, marrying the, the practical to the, the bigger question and, and maybe like looking for the opposite um, kind of specialties, if that, if that makes sense. So I guess, you know, um... I'm also a lawyer and, and I've actually never heard Maureen talk about this, but it's really interesting because <laughs> I had kind of the same moment in law school where, you know, you're being told, well, this is, they decided this because of this prior case, blah, blah, blah. And in my own mind, I'm going, that's not like, there's no forcing there. It's, it's just, <laughs> what are they able to do? You know, what do they think is good policy here? Um, and so that kind of led me in a much more, much less specific way to these questions as well. 
Um, I think, you know, this is, uh, this is why Maureen and I have, have worked well together, right? Mm -hmm. Is that we've come at it from slightly different um, perspectives. And the thing that she is really, I think, uniquely able to do well is to synthesize a lot of what is uh, just incredibly all over the place immigration law, right? And so, um, you know, she's able to kind of tell me, here's what the changes look like in the circuits. And then we go through the process of, of operationalizing that and, and, and gathering the right data and, and getting the right unit of analysis and all of that. And so um, I think it's, it's, it's been important in our ability to kind of ask and answer these questions, right, is, is, is looking at both. Uh, from my so from my perspective what her practical experience brings is really the ability to say confidently here's what the law says right um does it actually matter um so that that's my that's my take on it i don't i don't know about marine yeah i think in terms of marrying the practical to the theoretical uh for me it's similar because when when so banks was my professor in um in grad school and then so talking to him was that initial connect for me because he thought things similarly, especially when it came to the data. When I sat down with him and he was like, you really need to code your own data to, to understand sometimes. Like for me to go through that process, because a lot of the times when you first start in grad school, you're getting all of these, um, you know, kind of canned data set that you're playing with. And I remember coming to him with the frustration. He probably doesn't remember, but I came to him and I sat down, you know, like uh, I said to him, like, I cannot work. I need to connect what I saw and what I'm, what am I experienced? And I, I think because he's a lawyer also, he was able to say, okay, I understand where you're coming from on this. Here's what you need to do. You need to sit down and just code some cases and code what you see in the real world and understand how that translates into the data that you're working with. So that plus having those conversations with him about, it took a while for me. And I'll say like with immigration judges to situate them in the literature that clicked for me. So they, they fit into several different literatures. So originally I was looking at them with the judicial politics lens and then um, immigration policy scholarship and looking at that and now connecting to, to the um, to the policy specific, like the bureaucracy literature. Now I'm beginning to kind of really connect all, all of these different theories that apply to them and then understanding, I think for me was really just that connection with the data Right. How are we how are we actually measuring and modeling what's going on here? And then his advice to code it. I can see it. I can see it now. I said, OK, well, this is what that number means. This is what this means. And um, kind of playing with models and understanding how. Yes, I can see I can see this in the cases and in the numbers, if that makes sense. Right. So that's the, the big thing for me. So nothing against canned data. We use it sometimes. <laughs> but for me, if I can get in there and really understand, I, I have to look at somebody's code book. I have to really get like, how did you translate what we're seeing in this, you know, in the real world and into these numbers? And then how do we play with, right? Work out the modeling. So Maureen, you actually, uh, you, you bring up kind of this point that I feel like most of the scholars that have been on the podcast actually bring up, right? And there's, there's mixed advice actually, um, I've noticed over, uh, the past shows is um, some some people really advocate for know your theory, like really understand 
whatever that policy process theory is that you're interested in or whatever it might end up being, and then try to find a domain to look at, right? Um, and the exact opposite, but common advice is, is kind of what you're talking about, right? So you knew the domain, you, um, you know, practiced in that domain, and then you're kind of seeking out the right theoretical frame to uh, think about what you're seeing. Um, and I, I guess, um, could you kind of talk a little bit more about that and how, um, you know, your practice really informed how you're looking at things on a theoretical side. Um, and Banks, if you're if you're willing, uh, agree or disagree, or um, how you kind of approach maybe similar questions, um, that would be great to hear. Sure, I think one of the things, that's why reading uh, Banks's book was so important for me in my process because it was very, it was very, um, I don't know what the words would say. It reflected reality very clearly, right? So if I, just to give one example, uh, my experience with immigration judges and, and interacting with them and understanding that, yes, the law really, like that was one of the things that drove me really wanting to study the Court of Appeals because they really do focus on in the courtroom, in their, you know, in their, in, um, and then of course the briefs that you'll see to the Board of Immigration Appeals the Court of Appeals is who you cite, right? You cite the BIA, you cite the Court of Appeals. So I knew that it mattered. And then I also knew the um, circumstances under which they worked. And I knew from other attorneys who had way more experience than I did, um, immigration attorneys who would say, it really depends on the judge you get, right? And they, they they would talk about how much discretion they have. And then they would say to you, oh, that, that guy was a prosecutor. That person was a, you know, worked for an NGO. So you would see... Um, so I could see in reading his book that this actually really does connect to reality. So for me, when I'm looking at a theory, I'm asking myself, does it reflect, do the, do the variables, do their explanation of the, the theoretical mechanism, <clears throat> does that connect to what I've seen in the real world? And so really finding that initial was a big jump for me in terms of, okay, now I know what I'm looking for. I have a harder time when I, I can read a theory, but if I don't have a practical, if it doesn't have that kind of practical element to that and that connection to the real world as to what it looks like, um, then it's very hard for me to kind of move forward and really, really, really delve into that theory, I think. Well, that's, I'm glad it reflected reality, Marie. It does. It really does. That's good to hear. Um, uh you know, I, there, there's this sort of, and I'm going to paraphrase this incorrectly, the saying about, you know, like, if you want to do well, focus on something that seems really boring or esoteric and just know it incredibly well. Um, and maybe that applies to theory or, you know, substance. I don't, I don't know. But I think, um, you know, the comparative advantage way of thinking about this makes some sense to me, right? So, so Maureen and I both have um, legal training, right? Maureen has extensive experience with immigration practice. Um, you know, the other major policy area that I study is intellectual property. And, and that's because you know, I have a lot of friends who practice in that area who are like, you should be looking at this. This is crazy. Um, and so I think, you know, we, we are both aligned that the way you come to this is from subject matter first. Um, but 
it's certainly not the only way. And it's just, maybe it's just something about how our brains work. Maybe it's something about the legal training first. I, you know, I don't know, but um, I am like Maureen, much more comfortable entering into an area where I can say, okay, you know, I have a basic understanding of what's going on here substantively. How can we explain it? Right. Right. Um, right. And uh, that that also might just reflect the fact that that we are neither one of us are trained as public policy scholars per se. Right. Um, and so, you know, I, I kind of part of my own research process here, as I said, is I'm really interested in discretion and the questions of like, what is it? What does it mean? How do you limit it? it do you want to limit it? Um, and um, so I tend to, you know, to the extent that I have a theory, right? I'm looking for places in the real world where I can get get into those kinds of questions, right? Um, and it just turns out that immigration is a place where we can get data um, and where we also both have some substantive expertise. And it's a place that, you know, people really, especially recently, have started to care about. Um, I think it's something that has begun to pop up, for instance, a lot more in policy studies in general, right? Um, uh, and intellectual property is a little bit of a harder sell, but uh, <laughs> maybe we'll get there someday. I don't know. So, Banks, if I can kind of pick this up where you left it, um, you know, kind of talking about the intellectual curiosity, um, the kind of specific components that you're really interested in. Um, the reality is, is that the data needs to be there. Um, I'm just curious if you could talk through kind of the, the genesis of this specific project, right? We talked a little bit. I know Maureen um, mentioned that uh, Josh was saying, okay, well, we're really talking about bounded rationality. But yeah. um, if you can kind of give us this background of, um, you know, where is this coming from? And in reality, you started out asking a completely different question and it, it morphed into this or mm -hmm. whatever that kind of backstory is. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess high level um, to answer kind of the second question first is that this was it was it was pretty inductive for us. I mean, we kind of knew, you know, we had theory, right, um, for sure, but we also wanted to learn a little bit from the data, and I and I think this is maybe our slight preference or maybe major preference for practicality, right? How does this matter in the real world? Um, and so we don't want to build sort of sandcastles in the sky. What we want to do is take something that's going on and figure out for ourselves why. Um, the, the, the story on the origin of this is long and arduous. Um, before <laughs> Maureen was even in graduate school, we were trying to get and collect this data on immigration judges. And it started out with a series of initially futile FOIA requests to the federal government, um, where they essentially said, no, we don't have the data you're asking for. And we knew that wasn't true. But it turns out that the, the issue was, of course, they were going to stonewall us because they didn't want to deal with gathering it. Um, and what we had to do was figure out exactly how to ask for it. Um, and what happened was they actually, I think, made a mistake at one point And in denying one of our requests, sent us a list of variable names. Um, in their own data set. So we immediately <laughs> turned around and asked them for those variables. Um, and they were shocked that you knew exactly. Yeah, they gave it to us. 
And so that was the genesis of the book that Maureen is referencing. Um, but later on, um, other people came in and I think used similar processes to create kind of an updated version of the data. And so somebody shared it with us in this instance, the, the base data set. And that is what we ultimately used to kind of build upon, um, create our own, what we needed for this, for this paper. Maureen, do you have any kind of additional thoughts or where you're coming from on this project? Well, yeah, what we had, you know, spending that time cleaning and figuring out how to work with that IJ data was, was so fun, but we got that um, working. And then, and then I think, um, for me, the big part was, or at least, so this is kind of, us lawyers will say kind of the fun part would be, right? Like Banks would be like, we're gonna go through the case law and we're going to trail, do a trail as to when this um, this credibility standard, which is what we're looking at. So like the real ID, when it was adopted, you could see pretty clearly, right? That's when Congress made their statement of their policy preferences, right? The other principle here would be the executive. And it was, it was fairly easy for me to find when that was adopted, when they adopted that standard, that easier credibility standard uh, or the newer credibility standard and for the Board of Immigration Appeals. But the, the more in-depth was looking at the case law of the courts and coding that and determining when did they adopt that standard um, that Congress had uh, the initial kind of this rejection of the, um, the harder standard. When did they adopt it? And, and did they ever adopt it? And did they sometimes try to reject it, right? So that's that's kind of the origin of what's interesting to me is what the Court of Appeals were doing. Um, so building that data set and then combining it with what we had on immigration judges and really looking at the change. Um, and then of course, so we had the change in the standard, then we have the policy preferences in general of the courts. And we can't ferret out exactly influence of law versus ideology here, like what the IJs are looking at and I've talked to IJs about this and I don't think they know for sure, right? I mean, they know they're looking at the law and they can say to you, right, this is what the law is. And um, and the Court of Appeals is really key for that. Um, they can cite precedent, but then there's that, like Banks is talking about in the digital politics literature, there's that level of, there's layers of discretion in, in both Court of Appeals, their ideology comes in, immigration judges' ideology comes in or, or their background characteristics. And so kind of looking at how do we measure both of those influences, I guess the fun part for me in the data collection was going through the cases and, and pulling that together and explaining when those policy preferences were expressed. So. Certainly, and, and Maureen, you're alluding to it, I think a little bit, but um, there there seems to be like a cart and horse, I don't know if you wanna use that analogy, right? But did you go out with this question and looking for the data or uh, were you kind of looking for the data, seeing what you could get um, and then kind of the, the question then solidifies under the data. Um, and even within this, you allude to it, right? Uh, you know, you're asking the courts, you're asking to try to figure out, you know, um, what where the holes are essentially, uh, you know, what, what do we need to actually answer this broader question? Um, so would you be willing, uh, both of you or, or Maureen, to kind of talk about uh, that process of question and data refinement, um, that, that whole process there. Yeah, I think um, I had the advantage of knowing that, you know, from Banks's book that there was the IJ data. And so what we were wondering was whether we could get updated IJ data. So we had some of it and then we were able to get further in because we wanted to incorporate Trump. We needed to incorporate the Trump period. Um, and so that was part of it. 
And then um, I think looking at the Court of Appeals and I kind of knew, I mean, for me, the question when I originally was thinking about this was that question of what's the Court of Appeals influence, knowing that precedent matters so much to immigration judges. Um, but I, I think I already knew, I knew basically I was going to be able to find that key case in most of the circuits. Um, but then when you're delving into it, it becomes a lot more complicated. I can tell you, know, because you're reading the cases and you're like, I had to read a lot of cases to figure out exactly when, you know, you have to, re you read one and then they cite another and another and another. So I think there was some question. The only concern I had was, you know, that question of whether or not, what if they just don't ever adopt it, like actually adopt the standard if they just, um, another, another paper I wrote talked about how they had tried to, court of appeals judges tried to lessen the impact of the real ID and how they had tried to, um, not outright reject the standard, but try to tweak it a little bit when it happened. So I was thinking about how do I operationalize it? And there were several times I had, you know, like there was, I was going to do several more fine grained. And then ultimately in talking to banks, we were like, okay, we're going to do, did they adopt it or not? Because that was, that was the most clear demarcation that we could make um, in the data. So that was, so I think it was the question First, but I had the advantage of knowing from the grad school experience that there was already this this basic data that they had gotten for their book, and and so that was the big process for me. Yeah, I'll just I'll just add sort of more generally. I think you, you have to have some kind of question first, right? Mm -hmm. um, and then because you don't know what data you're looking for if you don't, um, and uh, and so in this particular project. Um, it was driven by Maureen's question, right? Which was, you know, what are they, in, in this book that she's referencing that we wrote earlier, we did not really deal with the circuits at all. Um, and so that was an obvious, you know, hole and, and she had practical experience to know it probably mattered. And so from there, it just becomes a question of, um, you know, we knew this data existed on some level and we got lucky because somebody had um, essentially, gone through and um you know updated it right um and and then and then you know then there's an, a little bit of an arduous process of like cleaning it mm -hmm. figuring out you know they had cleaned it we needed to do some stuff to it for our own purposes and would it would it be you know um useful for answering these questions and it, and it turned out that it was um after some work with it um but, you know, I think in policy studies in general, you're often dealing with pretty messy administrative data. And so there's a lot, um, you know, I think graduate students don't always understand at first that a lot of the job is really like figuring out, you know, what is this data useful? Can I trust it? What do I need to do to it to make it answer the question that I want to answer? And so for me, it's it's always a kind of dialectical thing, right? It's like you're you know, you have an idealized version of what you want that never exists. And so how do you get to a question you can answer with the data that you have, right? And and kind of make them meet in the middle, maybe. Um, yeah, definitely. When you get the data, you're so excited and you're thinking, they've released all this stuff. And then you start looking at how, okay, so they changed this variable at this point in time, they changed the name or they don't code this one anymore. And they, they don't make it easy for sure. <laughs> they don't make right. it easy. So do you do you have advice about this of um, kind of that that process banks that you're alluding to um, of kind of going back and forth? So starting with a question, um, especially our audience being kind of younger scholars, 
starting with a question, looking for data, refining, looking for more data, and then kind of finally emerging with uh, whatever your question ends up being. Yeah. I don't think there's one way to do it. Um, I think sometimes you become aware of data and then you start thinking about questions. Um, that definitely happens. Um, I would say, I mean, my, my best advice is probably just to be opportunistic, to um, try to make room to read outside of what it is that you think you're interested in, either in something adjacent or, um, you know, sometimes you can just set aside time to go see what's in the ICPSR data archives, what's, you know, um, and so, so sometimes you just, you don't know, right? Um, and, and I think either approach can get you where you want to go. Um, what I would say is I wouldn't spend a lot of time looking for a perfect canned data set. Like they don't really exist because people, I think, build them to answer specific questions and that matters, right? Um, and so um, I do try to tell the graduate students here, you know, you're almost always better off building one yourself. One, because it's likely that you're going to be able to answer a unique set of questions, um, which will help you get published. Um, and then the other is that on the backside, if you publish the data, that can also be cited, right? And so you're going to build up um, uh, extra citation counts. And I think Maureen is also right, right? I mean, you learn by getting into the data, right? And looking at it. Um, and there's really, I don't think any substitute for that. Um, I don't really crystallize on a project until I've been forced to sit down and think about what's the data, what is the structure, you know, what can we do as a unit of analysis um, uh, and all those sorts of things. And so I, you know, I, I, I wish I could say like, these are the steps, always do them in order. Um, it's more just, I think, being aware of opportunity and thinking about, you know, what, what questions aren't being answered? What data would we need to answer it? Is there a reason that nobody has gotten that data? Um, sometimes there is, sometimes there isn't. Um, and I think the, the last thing I'll say here is I think it helps both Maureen and I that we work um, in a little bit of an interdisciplinary fashion. So oftentimes there's data that's been created by, let's say in this case, this instance, when we got the data by law professors who have one set of questions and we can grab that data and use it to answer a slightly different set of questions, again, with, with some work on, on what, what's in there and what it looks like. Um, and so I think, I think any time you're looking for um, sort of, you're looking for those spaces, right, in the literature where you can kind of move in and, and, and provide something unique. And so being a little interdisciplinary probably helps there as well. There's definitely a lot of ideas that we can get from looking at just law professors or just looking, you know, uh, sometimes they'll send me an article and just say, you should read this law review article. And think, we're going to think about it in a totally different way, but there's an issue that they're bringing up. There's a question. In yeah. There. It's sort of like that. There's somebody wrong on the internet meme, right? Like yes. Somebody wrote something we don't agree with. Yes. Um, or like, we don't think this is actually the answer. Like, let's see if we can figure it out. Yeah. Great. I think that this, um, has been great advice, especially about data and how to kind of formulate questions in conjunction with data. Uh, but to make it kind of bigger, do you just have broader advice that you would give uh, young scholars, uh, graduate students, uh, given your experiences? 
I think for me, one of the big lessons, um, and, and it was within this project that I've been working for, is that I have those, I've had those questions and I have the habit of sitting on them for a while and feeling like I have to get it all perfectly laid out before I approach somebody to talk to them about it, right? So these are things that I've been thinking out throughout grad school. And I'm thinking, well, I can't go to banks until I have like, it was like, I felt like I had to have the whole paper written, you know, like, <laughs> and this was like the initial, you know, and then it, it probably, I don't know how many years it took me before I went to him, even it was after I had graduated. And I just said, you know, I really think this is a hole in the book. And I had done so much preparation work, which was helpful. But in the end, it was really in talking to him about it that I was able to move forward. So I think when, and, and it was the same thing with Josh, when I wanted to work with him, I had read his stuff and I was like, we could work on this, but I just kept thinking and thinking. And I think when you go to somebody to collaborate or just talk to them about an idea, you need to have an idea. You need to have a basic research question. You don't want to go to somebody and say, I want to do something on immigration. What's your ideas, right? Like that's not really going to go well, but you need to have kind of a basic idea of what's your research question. Do you think there's data out there? These kinds of things, but realize that you don't have to have it all perfectly crystallized because really the point and the benefits of collaborating is because those people know things you don't know. Right. And, and so for me, it was, that was one of the biggest hurdles I had to get over. Right. Is to say, I don't have to have it all figured out. I can, I can come to people and, but you have to find people, obviously you can trust with your ideas and you feel comfortable with, and that takes time. But um, that's, that's one of the things I would really encourage young scholars to do just to not think, because we're so, we're so pressured that we have to be the experts and we don't, we don't want to come out looking like we don't understand something or we're, we're missing something. So I know for me that came out like, well, then I have to have it all perfect, right? But but you don't, you know, you can talk to people about it. I, I think that's really good advice. Um, one thing I would say is that I think often, you know, when you are a young scholar, when you're coming out of graduate school or you're on the tenure clock, there's a lot of pressure to to move and to publish and to show, you know, to show that you can do that. and. That, that pressure is not necessarily a bad thing in terms of motivating you to do to do stuff, but I do think that sometimes you can get caught up in a kind of like grind, grind kind of mindset where you're just like, I got to put in X number of hours on this or I'm not doing what I'm supposed to be doing. And I think that oftentimes there's real value in stepping back. Um, you know, one of the things that I have trouble with that Maureen, I think is really good at, at helping me with is that often I will, I'll get really interested in a really narrow question um, that oftentimes I just want to answer for myself. I don't even really care about publishing. <laughs> and so one of the things, she, you know, she's good at saying kind of like, well, here's what people are actually talking about and thinking about, right? And And I often don't take the time to really back out and think about how would other people be interested in this, right? And so um, I think that that's a really important step. Um, that's kind of a framing question. Oftentimes, you know, I think you could write the same article two different ways and get vastly different outcomes in terms of where it's published. Um, and so I think, you know, making time in your process to, to really, you know, you, you kind of get into a, a thing right? To, to kind of hit pause at some point and just say, okay, but wait, like, how can I make this interesting to more people outside of the, whatever, the 25 scholars who may actually be really interested in this exactly the way that I'm, that I'm asking it. And um, that can be hard, I think, especially when you feel the pressure of time, right? When you feel like I don't have time to 
you know, I just got to get stuff going. Right. Um, but I, but I do think that, um, there's real value in, in trying to figure out in your own process, how to make that time. Wonderful. And I guess if I could follow up, uh, kind of at the intersection of these two points, right? So Maureen talking about, uh, reaching out and, and starting collaborations, um, banks talking about the grind of tenure, uh, but also the advantages of reaching out and having collaboration. So um, I, I'm, I guess if uh, both of you could talk about, you know, kind of the value of collaboration, how you're um, looking for other scholars to collaborate, um, and maybe even uh, as Maureen is getting into how to actually reach out, propose these kind of bigger projects. Um, I know that's a loaded question, but uh, <laughs> it, uh, in part or in full, um, I think it'd be great to hear what you both are thinking. Yeah, I think I have one solo authored publication. Um, <laughs> I and it was you know it's for my dissertation, which I hated by the time I was done with it. So um, <laughs> uh, I, I find incredible value in it um, in ways that Marine has talked about in terms of other people know things that you don't, um, but also in terms of holding myself accountable. Um, it really helps me to have somebody there that is relying on me to do something. Um, mm -hmm. and, and so I think for me, those are the two big, um, uh, big, you know, benefits of collaboration. And then, and then there's also just your spreading risk, right? I mean, you can probably work on more stuff if you work with more people and you don't always know a priori what's going to hit and what isn't, right? And so it's also just, if you think about it like a portfolio, right, it's kind of a way of, of spreading things out um, across multiple projects, which you can do more of if you have help. Yeah. And then it just opens you up to more questions and more, I mean, in talking to people, I mean, um, being able to say to Josh or Banks, I have this idea. And, and then being able to say, you know, banks say, you can't get data for that. Or, <laughs> or Josh will just say, or sometimes, I mean, we'll just, if you want to be able to come to somebody and say, I have this idea, can you help me see where it fits in your literature, right? Because that way you have more outlets because there's more than one way to frame a piece and there's more than one way to understand how it could work out. And I think that for me, collaboration so I started out doing I don't remember, all of my and the first stuff was all solo author. And I gave 100 percent to each one of those. You know, I think I had like five, five solo authors before I got the courage to go to people and say, um, OK, I feel like I can actually say, here's what I'm bringing. Here's what you're bringing. Like, I felt like I had to prove myself, I guess. But then it becomes I bring 100 percent to the project. You know, Banks and Josh brought 100 percent to this project. And now the project can get so much bigger. Right. That that was one of the big things, because you could say to yourself, in some ways, it was safer and easier to try to write things on my own. But whether it's in terms of the theory getting bigger and more and more um, able to actually reflect reality and connect to different literatures and bring insights from different literatures, or it's um, really being able to get the data like we were talking about, like understanding the data from different or different methods that people have used and pulling that in. Like for me, that was the big draw for me. I realized that I could do much bigger projects. And like Banks is saying, you could do more than one at a time. You can be working on these several different projects. Whereas when I was doing it myself, it was, you know, it was the max I could do would probably be 
two or three at a time that I could have my hands in. And it was hard to move from more than that. Um, whereas now when I can collaborate, I can be working in tandem with somebody who's got another expertise and we're able to make a bigger impact and get more out there at the same time. And I feel like speak to more, speak, speak, um, especially when it comes to data, being able to have a larger data set and be able to feel like I feel stronger about my results because I have this data. So. And Reen, you've talked about this a little bit already, um, but for both of you, what, what advice would you give a younger version of yourself? Or even what advice were you given that at the time you're like, there's no way, like that's, I'm not gonna do that. Um, but now in your uh, older, wiser years, you've realized that that actually was, was really good advice. Well, I was told early on to build my own data sets, um, which I've mostly done. Um, again, made possible by, by collaboration. Um, and I think that you, um, there's, a, there's a fine line to walk here when you collaborate a lot about becoming kind of pigeonholed. So, you know, I tend to be kind of the data and analysis person on most papers that I end up on for whatever reason. Um, but it's really, really nice sometimes to be able to flip that, right? And be kind of the person who gets to go out and read and try to put things together in a little bit of a different way. And um, so I think, you know, there, there's some value in specializing like that if you can do it, right? It just makes you that much more efficient um, in the writing process. I have a long, long time collaborator that works with Maureen. And I mean, for us, it's just, it's, it's pretty modular, right? In some ways. Um, now, it's not to say that we're not thinking about things, but, you know, I know he's going to do this part. I'm going to do this part. Right. And we don't have to talk about it too much. Um, so I think, you know, trying to find those people um, early in your career, if you can, um, is awesome. Um, and then I, I think, you know, I would say that, I mean, at least for me personally, and this may not apply to everybody, but if I'm working on something that I'm actually interested in versus something that I think will publish or interest others, there's a huge difference. And I, I just, you know, I've got to be motivated sort of intrinsically in that way to like care about the answer to the question. Um, and so, you know, an example of this is that obviously, right, political science has undergone a kind of a credibility revolution um, in terms of, you know, causal modeling and, and all of that. And it's great, but it also limits the questions you can ask in some ways. And so um, I, I think there's some, you should, as a young scholar, right, you should put some thought into whether or not, you know, you want to ask this question because you think you can use a particular method on it or whether you're, and, and that's not wrong, right? I mean, that's a strategy. Or, you know, if you're going to ask a question that you're really actually interested in the substantive answer to, and I personally lean toward the latter, but that's just how my brain works, right? Um, so I think either approach works, um, but being maybe a little bit conscientious about which approach you're going to kind of try to, to use maybe is also uh, worth thinking about. Yeah, I think... <clears throat> I think my advice is one, definitely have that practical knowledge and the real world applicability in the back of your mind. Like, because, you know, we can sit and think about questions, um, but 
you want to get the information and talking to practitioners and reading what practitioners are writing. You want to really understand what is it for me personally, what is it, what is the impact of what I'm writing? Like, how would this be interesting to policy uh, practitioners and to scholars themselves? Like that is a big motivator for me. And if you're one of those people, then don't be afraid to do that. I mean, just really get in there and get into um, what people are actually doing. And then, and then be able to find those people you can collaborate with where you can just sit back and feel comfortable just talking about ideas, just talking about them and not, like I said, don't feel like you have to have everything perfect, but then finding those people where you don't, you're not moving in. You don't feel like you have to impress, right? Where you can say <laughs> there was the advantage of the fact that Banks saw me as a grad student until now. So at this point, that's already out the window, right? Like I don't have to worry about impressing him um, because he saw me through the, the grind of it all, right? So it's a little less of a worry. And that's how it is with Josh. He can, I, we can, we'll talk or text about ideas and just, and then somebody who's able to kind of go with you along with these, but also say, no, that's just not going to work, right? You need those people who are going to say, to be honest with you, that you feel comfortable enough and that you trust enough that will say to you, okay, that piece is not going to work or, and they're not afraid to say that to you, right? Like uh, there'll be times when I get an idea um, and I mean, just happened the other day, I texted Josh. I was like, well, what if we went in this direction? And he was like, well, maybe not, (laughs) you know, and he'll do that to me Um, because you can, you can get excited about idea and then start going in all these different directions. So you need people that will help you both get bigger and get smaller. Right. And say, no, no, no. You need to you need to keep on this track. That's that's another paper. Right. Like some things banks will say that that's going to be another paper. We can do that on another paper. So yeah. I think really. Yeah. Go ahead. Sorry. And, and in fact, that's how this paper came about. Right. As it grew out of yeah. another paper. Um, and the other thing I'd add just briefly to, to what Maureen's saying about collaboration. I mean, as a, as somebody who's now a little bit more senior in the field or whatever, I love it when people come to me with ideas, right? I don't have to come up with the idea myself. So um, it's never, you know, I have never felt like that is a bad thing. I almost never say no um, if I can help it. Um, even if the idea is not particularly well fleshed out, like it's 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 got potential usually almost always. Um, and so I would say err on the side of asking. Um, uh you know, it doesn't have to be perfect. And it's in some ways better if it's not perfect. If you don't have a rigid idea of what it is, mm-hmm. then you can sometimes do more um, than you otherwise would. And you could take those checks when somebody says to you, um, you know, you're going a little too far in that direction. You kind of, you know, you have to bring it back. Because if you have too rigid an idea where you say, I have to do this and this is how I have to do it, then you're not willing to listen to the feedback. And I know that there's a tendency in the field um, that you feel like you have to be critical. And sometimes that can be hard to hear because we probably hear it a lot if you go to a conference or right. Um, but being able to be open to that, again, when you build those relationships, when somebody will say to you like, okay, no, that's carve that off, focus on this. And you can do that for each other. I think that's one of the, one of the really great things about collaboration. Wonderful. Um, we're coming up on the hour here. So, um, just one last question, really broad. Um, any cl- uh, concluding thoughts that either of you have um, about this paper, about kind of our conversation, or, or things more broadly? Maureen, you go first. 
Well, I think if I try to draw it all together, I'm excited about this paper and um, it, the, the, pull, the way that the three of us are taking what we know from our areas in judicial politics and the law literature and really delving more into where it fits within policy scholarship. I find that really exciting because there's that connection to the practical application. And I think the three of us already have the background necessary to go into it. But the more you delve into the literature, the more I'm being inspired, inspired by more and more questions and different ways to attack it. And so I think that um, that's what's really exciting to me is, is that benefit of a new perspective, which I, only, I always find exciting, but knowing that it is a perspective that connects so well with a lot of the stuff that we've already been doing, which is really exciting. Yeah, I'll say to, to make it a little bit concrete, you know, um, Maureen and Josh have a book project that's um, building on a lot of this stuff at the circuit court level. And then, you know, Maureen and I have a, a separate project that's doing things like looking at how immigration has been sort of uh, made into a criminal kind of policy in the federal district court and, and what does that mean? Um, and, and those are both outgrowths of, you know, this project plus others that Maureen has been working on. And so, you know, once you, once you kind of get the ball rolling, it almost, um, it almost gets easier, right. Um, as you go, because the questions just crop up as you work. Um, and so I think that's another thing I would say is, is sometimes it can seem daunting to be like, oh, you know, to get tenure, I'm going to have to come up with whatever, eight articles or whatever it is. Um, but I often think that, you know, as long as you're active, you're going to, you're going to get there in terms of ideas, right? I mean, it's just the, the, the social world is so messy and so hard to understand that um, there's almost always room to try to figure something out. Um, and um, that's certainly true in, in our, in our research, right? Is that it, it really has just built um, on, initial steps and um, trying to understand, you know, what's going on. Wonderful. Uh, thank you both, uh, Banks and Maureen, for being with us today. Um, just a reminder for all those that are listening in whatever format you are, uh, please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast here. Um, I also just want to thank our kind of two sponsors that have been supporting this joint initiative, both the Policy Studies Journal and the Center for Policy Design and Governance here at Syracuse University. Uh, so again, uh, thank you so much. The, the hour went quickly. I know we're a little bit over, um, but thanks for the great conversation. Um, and for everyone else, we'll see you next quarter. Thank you for having me. Yes, thank you so much.